Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 130. We're making our way through the Psalm of Ascent, and so we got about four more weeks uh, here, and so God has been good and kind to us. The Psalm of Ascent, we believe, we're saying as the pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem during one of the three uh, feasts, uh, and so just keep that in mind. It's in the, in the backdrop of our minds here. A Song of Ascent. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we turn our hearts to your word, and we thank you for it. We thank you for psalms like this, Lord, which remind us that in any moment, any of our lives can be in the depths, in the pit, and yet your word proclaims good news to your people, that you are the God who rescues your people, and you will bring us into glory. Thank you for passages like this, Lord, which remind us of your goodness, of your mercy, of your redemption, and I pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom to handle it rightly and pastorally. But more importantly, Lord, that it would bring glory and honor and faithfulness to your name. Forgive me my sins. I know they are many. They're ever before me. May you blot them out and continue to make me and your bride white as snow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I had the privilege of going to Davis uh, Magnet School, which is on Congress Street, which is near downtown Jackson. And one of the advantages to living near or, or, or going to a school near downtown is that we got a chance to walk on our field trips. And so we walked to the Capitol. We walked into the Bellhaven neighborhood. We walked to Smith Robertson Museum. We walked to the planetarium. But the other advantage was that we had uh, really good partners in the neighboring community who often came to our school. And so it was normal for us to, to not do your average, you know, you do your average uh, fire drill at school and someone goes and rings a bell. We had fire trucks, like a real, real fireman would come and it would feel like the real thing. And our teachers didn't really have to teach fire safety, fire education. The firemen, which was two blocks away on Fortification Street, would come in their gear. And so I remember them showing us uh, videos on safety. There was one video they showed us, a room to live, right? Seatbelt safety. Um, they talked to us about, what do you do if a building is on fire? And they didn't just talk, they modeled it for us. And so you stop what you're doing, you line up at the door, and you get on your knees because smoke rises, and so you, you crawl to your, next, your nearest exit, and then you exit out of the building. What do you do when, if you're in a fire and you're caught on fire? And just to see grown men doing stopping and dropping and rolling, right? 
Like they, they did it and they taught it, they brought it to life. But the premise behind it was, if you're in a situation that's unforeseen, these things can save your life. Wearing a seatbelt, knowing the proper drill, stopping and dropping and rolling, that these things are there to help save life. What I want to put before you this morning is the unforeseen is happening to the psalmist. Now, last week when Brian preached, the suffering the psalmist was enduring was external. It says, they have plowed my back. In other words, the journey home has landed the pilgrim in a strange season in life where he's being afflicted by external people, other people. But we're still in a season of affliction in the Psalm of Ascent in 130. But here's a difference. The suffering is self-induced in this psalm. It's not last week where others were afflicting him. The affliction he's undergoing in this psalm is self-induced. You ever been there? Where your life is falling apart? Your joy is gone? And you're chasing down the culprit? And you realize that it's you? That you through your own choices and your own behavior and your own sin that you're hurting yourself and your walk with the Lord and people who love you? The question is, can that darkness leave? Can we be delivered even when the suffering we are enduring it's caused by us. That's what this psalm is about. And so I'm not going to tell you to stop and drop and roll, right? I am going to give you four points that I pray will restore joy to your souls when you find yourselves there. One is recognize. Two is cry out. Three is wait, and four is experience. Recognize, cry out, wait, experience. First point, recognize where you are when this happens. What's your most terrifying place to be, right? If your best friend or your spouse heard that you were in this place, that they would know that they're not okay, right? So maybe you have a fear of snakes, and you stumble onto a snake den, right? And your best friends hear that this is where you are, and they absolutely know he ain't okay, right? Or maybe your fear is being stuck in an elevator for 10 hours, and your best friend hears that, and they instantly know they're not okay. What's your phobia? What's your fear? Now, why does that matter? Because when this, when this psalm opens up, the psalmist is going to tell us where they are. And notice the opening verses. It says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. What are the depths? 
One concordance defines the depths as the deep parts of the sea or ocean. Now, this, this might not seem that important, but the Hebrew people were not water people. Water was a symbol of chaos and unpredictability. And yet, that is the, an image that the psalmist uses to describe where he is. It's out of the depth. It's out of the snake pit. It's in the elevator for 10 hours. I cry to you. In other words, he's not physically in the middle of the ocean, but spiritually speaking, he is in the place that he's vulnerable and afraid of. His joy is gone. He's buried alive. Now here's a question. What got him there? Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That iniquity carries with this, this image that something is supposed to be straight and yet it's bent. It's supposed to be level, and yet it's crooked. And so what we think what's going on here is the reason this man is in the depths, is in the pit, is because of his own crookedness. And in the Bible, uh, whenever you see this idea of our crookedness, our sin, our twisting, our living out of accord with God's standard— in the Bible, it always comes back to haunt us. There are consequences. And that's what's happening in this song. That he's in the depths because of his sin. There's a wordplay. Oh, Lord, if you could mark iniquities, who could stand? And he's literally not standing. He's drowning. Maybe he's done something heinous. Maybe he's killed a person. Maybe he's lied in court and caused someone to be unjustly punished. Maybe he's a landowner. And, and, and of course, when he harvests his grain, the poor never show up. And so he kind of assumes, well, I can harvest everything because they're not going to come. But on this particular day, a family shows up and they come to get grain from your farm and, and you have beat it to the edges and now you're found out. Or maybe she's had an affair. Or maybe she was caught drinking and driving. Or maybe her dependency on pills has her life out of control. Or maybe it's pornography. And you're found out. Maybe it's egregious. Or maybe it's respectable sins that, 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 that have eaten him alive. What are respectable sins? Jerry Bridges has this book entitled that. And he says the motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us who call ourselves Christians have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined and subtle sins. And in the book, he lays out the per pervasive sins in the church that we tend to tolerate. And we act like it's not a big deal to God, but it is a big deal to God. 
And on that list, respectable sins are anxiety, frustration, bitterness, pride, unthankfulness, discontentment, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, and jealousy, and these sins don't seem to, on the surface, to destroy the inner working of our lives. And then one day the Holy Spirit comes and shows you what that has caused. And it's like a weight of bricks hits you. And he says, I'm not unacquainted with any of these. He says, I, I was almost 34 when I got married. So I know something about the loneliness and jealousy of a, of a single adult life. And then there were his physical disabilities. He says, all my life, he's had a, I had a visual and hearing disability, neither which was treatable. And I can remember feeling rejected because I couldn't play baseball like the other boys. Still today, even as an older adult, those lifetime disabilities make me bitter. It makes life inconvenient. And even after marriage, I struggled with discontentment at our son's soccer and basketball games because I was at least 10 years older than the other parents around me. This, this is a man who's saying, I'm at my son's soccer game, and I'm balding, and I'm gray, and I'm at least 10 years older, and I look like granddad going out there So much so that I can't even enjoy my son's game because of his discontentment, his envy, his bitterness. Look, y'all, we don't know what's causing the psalmist to be in the depths. What we do know is he is there. You been there? Should you be there? Have you been ignoring the unction and the work of the Holy Spirit? Whether respectable or egregious or anything in between, the Bible moves us in a direction that our crookedness will come back and it will pound us. And it happens. For the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, it says, Nevertheless, though we are secure, Believers may, through the temptations of Satan and of this world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in us, and the neglect of the means of our preservation, we may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby we incur God's displeasure and we grieve the Holy Spirit and we come to be deprived of some measures of their graces and comforts. We have our hearts hardened and our consciences wounded and we hurt and scandalize others and we bring temporal judgments upon ourselves right here and right now. That is what the psalmist is talking about. He's in the depths. He's in the depths. It's not a coincidence if you're there. It's a good God who's making you aware of how much you need him and how you've lost your first love 
and how crooked you've been in your decision-making and thinking. It's God's goodness for us to see. And that's what I pray. That if some of us need to be there, that he opens our eyes and lets us see where we are. The second point is cry out to the one who hears. Cry out. Oh, I lost my place. Hold on one second. Here we go. Sorry about that. Now, when this happens, what do we do? You got some options. One option is nothing, right? Just do nothing, ignore it, and that, 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 that doesn't work. Another option might be to minimize it. Oh, it's not that bad. It's just this. It's not that, right? Look at my life versus their life. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't need that much attention. Or maybe you go and you cry out to other people. Man, I think you're getting warm. But that's not what this psalm calls us to do. Did you notice that this psalmist says nothing to Israel or anyone else until it's down in verses 7 and 8? The person he cries out to in verse 1 and verse 2 in verse 3, in verse 4, it's to the Lord. He says, I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the plea, my pleas for mercy. Now, the image there is beautiful. He, he, he images, or God is imaged as having ears. And we know now that there are literally human ears on the throne of God. Because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he hears the cries of his people. And so this is no longer imagery and imagination. Like, this is reality. Like, there are human ears on the throne of God who hears the cries of his people. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Now, now what's the big deal with vocalizing, with, with using words, not thinking about it, but actually crying out and praying using words to our God who hears our words. What's the value in articulating and stringing together? I was conceived in sin and against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. What, what's the advantage? What's the good for uttering those words? Because words matter in the Bible. Everything you see right now, it's here because of words. That in the beginning, it was God who said, let there be light, and there was light. It was God who used words to create everything seen and unseen. It's God in the Ten Commandments who says, you shall not bear false witness 
against your neighbor. In other words, your words, the importance of our words, they even show up in the moral law. And so what's the big deal about using words? Proverbs 18 says the tongue has power of life and death. Think about this. We're not God where we can create something out of nothing. But do you believe that something magical and beautiful and glorious happens when we string together words in prayer that are honest about ourselves to our God? Jesus says you have not because you ask not. I think about it. Like, ask me. Elijah prayed that there was not rain, and there was not rain. And James, if you're sick, go to the elders, let them anoint you and pray over you, and you, and you might be healed. That in the Bible, God, for some reason, wants our words. He wants us to not bear false witness about ourselves before him. He wants us to string together truth and to bring our prayers before him. That we're not propping ourselves up. We're not bearing false witness about ourselves. So the one who witnesses every word, every thought, every deed, And yet it's easy to not confess. John Stott has a book, a little book, entitled Confess Your Sins. And he says, ever since the beginning, when Adam and Eve tried to cover, instead of confess, when they ran away, instead of drawing near, He says, that's us. We don't want to confess. It's hard to own it. And yet he goes on to say, and he quotes from Proverbs. He actually says, Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins and does not, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Conceal sin, do not prosper. Confess and cry out, he says, you will find mercy. Now, here's a question. Let's say you got a nine-year-old and a three-year-old. And mom has gone to the grocery store and she's gotten cookies. And she's put cookies in the glass container. And she's put them up on the high shelf. And the kids are only supposed to get cookies at dinner. But the cookies are just too tempting for the nine-year-old. And so they climb on the counter. Mom is sleeping. Dad is gone. They climb on the counter. They climb on the, on, on the, on the uh, countertops. They, they reach up into the cabinet. And they're trying to get these cookies. And all of a sudden, you know what happens. The jar falls to the ground. And glasses everywhere in the kitchen. Now, what do you want your nine-year-old to do when that happens? 
You want them to call the three-year-old to come help me clean up the shards of glass? No, that's like, it's a disaster. You want them to stay up there and to pontificate and to kind of figure out how can I get myself out of this? No, no, you want them to get off the countertops with no shoes on and to try to clean up the kitchen floor, right, with glass and cookies to make it act like it didn't even happen. That is not what you want. What you want in that moment is for your nine-year-old to cry out to mama or to cry out to daddy, mom or dad. I did this and I need you. If we want our children to cry out to us when they have made a mess in the kitchen, do you actually think God does not want to hear you cry out to him when you've made a mess of your life? He says, you cry out to me. You call me and it's not because he doesn't know. He knows. It's for us to own who we are, to own what we've done, to own our need for him. And that's what the psalmist does. He cries out to you, oh Lord, I cry. Which moves us to the third point, which is wait. We wait in hope for the one who will help. So, last week, week and a half ago, I was on the phone with Carl Arndt, and I was in the parking lot facing Northside Drive. And two motorcycles flew past me. They had to be, go- I mean, they need to put speed bumps or traffic lights out here, y'all. Two motorcycles. 85 miles an hour, zoom, zoom. And I'm looking like, man, they are flying. And then I heard an accident. And so I turned to my right, and right here off of Londonderry, a white car had come out, and the third motorcycle driver had hit the back of the car. And so I saw the car and the airbags right there. They deployed, and the motorcycle was on the ground. And I didn't see a third rider. And all of a sudden, I'm on the phone, and this guy drops out of heaven. He drops right in the middle of Northside Drive, in front of me. And I just panicked on the phone. I was just, I was like, I, 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 call, I, I call you back. I call you back, right? And so I'm scared. I'm, I don't know if this dude is decapitated. I don't know what I'm going to walk up on, y'all. I just start praying. And I called 911. And I walked up to the young man, and he was still alive, and he was alert, kind of in and out. And I'm sharing a gospel with this guy, like, in the street on Northside Drive. And I will never forget what I saw. And I realized that I can't save this dude. I can't put his intestines back in. I can't fix his broken bones. I'm scared to move him because I don't know if it's going to kill him. So me and 
The other two riders sat there, and I'm praying. I said, brother, I don't know if you're going to make it through this, but if your eyes close here, I pray that you open and you see Jesus. And all the while, I'm waiting. When will the cops show up? When will the paramedics show up? I've called them, and I'm looking to the east, and I'm looking to the west. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hear the sirens because I know that he needs more than what I can give him, more than what we can give him. He needs someone who specializes in caring for them, who has the equipment. He needs them to show up. And so I'm doing this the whole time. I'm trying to talk to him, but I'm looking this way. I'm looking this way. And do you know what it felt like three minutes later to hear those sirens coming and to see them paramedics who are normally parked down here anyway come on down with the policeman and then to see the fire truck come on down and shut the road down and they get out there and they handle it do you know the relief but do you know what it feels like to wait in hope that's what the psalmist is saying i've cried out and i'm hurting and i'm gonna drown and I need someone who specializes in rescuing drowning people. And so he's looking to the east. He's looking to the west. He's looking to the north. He's looking to the south. Where is my help? And notice what he says, I will wait on the Lord. Look at what he says in verses, verses 5 and 6. I wait on the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. This isn't the first time we've seen watchmen, is it? They were in Psalm 127. Here, the watchmen are on the night shift. And they're waiting on the sun to rise. They're looking out to the east. They're looking out to the west. They're looking out to see the rays of the sun break the sky because they know when the rays of the sun break the sky, they get relief, and they get to go home. And the psalmist in this psalm, he's not looking for the S-U-N. He's looking for the S-O-N. Are you on your way, Jesus? Will you come and rescue me? He's waiting, but he's waiting in hope, y'all. Did, did you catch the language there? In verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Did you catch that? In his word I hope. He's waiting to experience the joy of his salvation. He's waiting for the reality of who he is in the Lord and to the Lord to be experienced in the depths of his soul. 
He is not waiting to be saved again with a capital S. He's been saved. He's been redeemed. What he's waiting for in this passage is the joy of his salvation. He's not lost his salvation, nor his status, nor his standing, but he is waiting for the experience of who he is in the Lord. He's waiting to experience and taste God's deliverance over and over again. He has lost confirmation. He has lost assurance. He has lost joy, and he is waiting for God himself to draw near. But he says he waits in hope. And it says, look at verse 5b, in his word I hope. When he can't experience the reality of who he is before the Lord in the present, he trusts his words he's read about the Lord in the past. And that's the fight. That as we wait on the Lord, We wait by meditating on his word. This is who you said about yourself. And though I don't feel that right now, I'm going to believe that right here and right here. Though I can't trace your hand right now, I trust your heart and what you reveal to me in your word. This is why having God's word hidden in our hearts, this is why journaling, this is why worship, this is why drawing near to to the Lord in his word, this is why it's important in the valley of darkness. It, it, It anchors and it gives us hope. And so when we find ourselves in the depths, we've recognized that we're there, we've cried out, and we wait but it isn't passive, it's active. Singing his word, writing his word, journaling his word. It was Spurgeon who said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. which moves us to the last point. We experience God's salvation. God shows up, y'all. At some point, what the psalmist knows in verse 4 is true, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God will not, in one sense, charge this man's iniquity against him. The power of pardon is permanently resident with God. And he has an abundance of forgiveness that's at his hand that he is ready to give. He doesn't just have it, but he gives it. But here's the question. There seems to be a contradiction happening here. On the one hand, the psalmist says, if you mark iniquity, who could stand? He's actually saying, I'm trusting that you're going to come to me, not in judgment, not in wrath. You're going to come to me and deliver me in mercy and in your grace and in your goodness. Well, how can this happen? How can this happen when Scripture so eloquently says, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty? As Hebrew says, no creature is hidden from God's sight, for all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give it an account. What about Ecclesiastes 12? For God will bring every evil deed into judgment 
every secret thing, whether good or evil. What about Paul in 2 Corinthians 5? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. How is it that on the one hand, Scripture says God does keep a record? He does see everything. He will by no means clear the guilty. And yet this psalmist says you don't mark iniquity? That's a contradiction. So where's the hope that God will hear, will draw near in mercy and grace and love? You know where the hope is. It's because of Christ. I would encourage you to read Colossians alongside of Psalm 130. This psalm says that God is plentiful in redemption. It says he will redeem. This idea of forgiveness, it shows up in this psalm. And here's what Paul does in Colossians. He links all of this together. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In verse 3, the writer mentions marking iniquities. He seems to be saying God doesn't keep a record of iniquities. But Hebrew says he does. What does Paul say about that record of debt that stands against you? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. He does keep a record of sin. But for the believer, what Paul says is that when those men were nailing nails in the hand and body of Jesus, what your father was doing behind that was nailing the record of debt that stood against you. And what the Lord has done in Christ is take that record of debt, past, present, and future, egregious and respectable pet sins that we are slow to repent of. What the gospel says is he has nailed that to the cross of Christ. And so there was one person in all of humanity who could cry out from the depths, and the Father chose not to come to his rescue. And his name is not any of you in this room. His name is Jesus. Jesus cried out from the depths, and it was not because of his iniquity. It was for hours, and the Father did not come to his aid, so much so that the Christ, the cross would, through Christ, God would take away your debt and take away that record of debt, and it is no more. 
It's gone. That's the reason why we know the Father will come to our aid. Because there is no record of debt. It's cleared in his sight. He will hear his people. He will save his people. He will forgive his people. That's my longing. That if you're in the depths, that you would recognize it, that you would cry out, that you would wait in faith, and that our faithful God would allow you to experience the joy of your salvation and forgiveness and that he would draw near to you and lift you out of the pit. And notice what the psalmist says. God does this not that we would go live lawlessly, but that his name might be feared. That we would endeavor a new obedience, having tasted the cost for that obedience. You know, the psalm is a mini journey of the ascents. He starts literally in the depths. And by the end of the psalm, he's in the heights. How do we know he's in the heights? Look at what he tells Israel. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He will cleanse you from all of your iniquity. This was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms. So much so that we're about to sing it. This was the song that he had, that he wrote, but he also had it sang at his funeral. Luther thought that this was one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in the Old Testament. He regularly struggled with depression and sin and sadness. And it was Psalm 130 that was a balm for his soul. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you deliver your people? Would you allow us to come alongside of those in our congregation who are in the depths? May we be good listeners, but Lord, may we be good brothers and sisters who point them to cry out to you and to trust your word. Thank you, Jesus, for tasting ultimately the wrath of God that we might never taste that. Help us, Lord, to not play with forgiveness and not toy with our sins. Help us to fear you, which is a combination of adoration and gratitude, but also holy reverence. May it be so. Even so, we say, Lord Jesus. Amen.